Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. About a month ago in early November, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Bracken v. Holland case, a case that challenges the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. The Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, was passed by Congress and became law in 1978, at a time when as many as one-third of all indigenous children were taken from their homes. The vast majority were sent to live with white families or in residential boarding schools. ICWA was meant to preserve Native American families, traditions, and cultures and counter the widespread assumption that white families are best for all children. ICWA also protects tribal sovereignty by granting tribal nations exclusive jurisdiction over their enrolled members and their lands. The Bracken lawsuit is part of a series of lawsuits brought by conservative legal groups and lawyers to dismantle constitutional equality protections for people of color. Today, I'm joined by Susan Harness to discuss the history of child removal, in particular the Indian Adoption Project, and the outcomes of placing American Indian children with non-Native families. Susan is the author of Bitterroot, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption. Bitterroot is a High Plains Book Award winner in the categories of Indigenous Writer and Creative Nonfiction. Susan received her BA in Anthropology from the University of Montana, her MA in Cultural Anthropology from Colorado State University, as well as an MA in Creative Nonfiction. She is also the author of Mixing Cultural Identities Through Transracial Adoption After the Indian Adoption Project, 1958 to 1967. A member of the Confederated Salish and Katuni tribes, her interest in transracial adoption in general and American Indian transracial adoption specifically is both personal and academic. Susan writes and speaks nationally and internationally about American Indian transracial adoption, as well as about American Indian assimilation policies and practices. I'm so excited to welcome Susan to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. This is really um, this is really an honor um, to be able to even talk about this because it's a part of history that way too many people have no idea about, nor do they know it existed. Yes, exactly. And I'm so glad that you said that because this is important history that is not talked about, that is intentionally erased, I would say. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to frame our conversation this morning was making that connection to this current Supreme Court case, because as we know, the past and present are very much intertwined across a lot of the experiences and social issues that are happening in our world. And so I'm just so glad that we're able to talk about this topic. And hopefully for folks who this might be their first time, you know, learning about the Indian Child Welfare Act, or even learning about the Indian Adoption Project, they'll be able to see, okay, how is this even playing out present day? And what are maybe some things that I can do to get involved? Um, So let's just start with you. And maybe could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to this work? So I, um, I am a transracial adoptee. 
I was not part of the Indian Adoption Project, but I will say that I was a product of some of the early successful, in quotes, outcomes that were seen in the early years of the Indian Adoption Project. Um, I was removed from my family when I was 18 months of age. I lived with a social worker for six months. And then I was placed with my, um, my white parents when I was two years of age. Mm-hmm. We lived mostly rural. My dad was uh, National Fish and Wildlife. Um, so we lived on refuges, which were located anywhere between 60 or six and, and 90 miles from the nearest town. Oh, wow. So I got to know pretty well how rural people viewed American Indians. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't with any any respect, really. Very mm-hmm. few had any respect. Um, <clears throat> going, you know, coming up through junior high and high school, I started to hear, I started to hear how people talked about us. And so you know that it was coming from the home. Right. But I also started to become aware of what our history books were saying. And um, and it's it's really difficult to belong to a group of people that you know nothing about, that you're not encouraged to know anything about, and you're being told from every angle that they are bad people. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I got into college, I wanted to I wanted to get to know these bad people, being one of that population. Mm-hmm. And it was really difficult to make my way into the Native American um, social network mm-hmm. because I sound so white. I don't have the reservation dialect. I don't have a bunch of kinship networks that remember who I am. I don't have people who can introduce me. And um, and that's when I realized that they called people like me Apple Indians, mm. just red on the outside, white on the inside. And it is a slam. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very clear what that means. And so I grew up just with this with this, I don't want to say hatred, but this really uncomfortable feeling within me mm-hmm. of who I was being told I was, I was made of, with all the negative connotations, you know, attached to that. Mm-hmm. But I would look at the white people around me and I would wonder why their, why their disdain was so intense because I, like, but I'm just like you. Mm-hmm. I go to the same schools. I'm in classes with your children. We attend the same churches. We shop at the same stores. We do all these things. So what about me is so awful? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I really wanted to connect with my family throughout these years because I just felt there I would find acceptance mm-hmm. I would find unquestioned acceptance but trying to find one's family is just filled with gatekeepers 
-hmm. because nobody wants to get involved in that. Nobody wants to introduce somebody, a ghost from the past that they may or may not want to know. Mm -hmm. So it took me a long time. It took me um, a letter to the editor that my sisters just happened to see because I signed my birth name. Um, It took me counseling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Counseling a lot as transracial adoptees to start to realize I'm this, this concept that I have an identity crisis you know, all these native adoptees, they all have these identity crises. They realize I'm not the one with the identity crisis. Mm. Society has the identity crisis with me because I don't label easily. Mm. Wow. And that's when I decided to get my master's in cultural anthropology to figure out why that is. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started unfolding and, and, um, unpeeling the structural racism that exists in all groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Susan, what you just said, I'm not the one with the identity crisis. Society has the identity crisis with me. Wow. I think for transracial adoptees, like that statement so powerful. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yes, that is our our life where we've internalized, as you said, all these negative connotations, whether about our racial or ethnic group or just about us as an adopted person. But that's not our issue. That's society's issue. So, wow, thank you so much for for saying that. And thank you for sharing a little bit about your story with us, because I think it's important to understand how you come to this work um, and it's, its personal significance for you as well. So thank you for that. Uh, now, you mentioned something in the beginning, and I want us to, to spend a little bit of time here, which is that although you are a transracially adopted, you're a Native American, you weren't part of the Indian Adoption Project, though some of your work, of course, does examine this when we're thinking about the structural racism. So for folks for, who are not familiar, could you tell us a little bit about the Indian Adoption Project, what it was and what its purpose was? So I need to go back into history a little bit to help you understand what the Indian Adoption Project was part of. Mm -hmm. So really, since the inception of the United States government, they have tried to get rid of American Indians since the beginning. Mm -hmm. And there were wars. Did you realize that there were over a thousand wars declared on American Indian tribes in the U.S. since the U.S. Army was created? Wow. Wars. So when that didn't work, then we're just going to move them off the land. Mm-hmm. We are going to, uh, you know, march them from the, um, the Southeast and we're going to march them across 1200 miles and we're going to place them into Oklahoma territory because, you know, they just need a place to live. Mm-hmm. What wasn't said was that the government wanted the land. Mm-hmm. So if you just move them off and the land's available and we'll go ahead and we'll give them some land over here and we'll make these trees and we'll make sure that they've got everything they need, you know, cotton clothing that's going to replace like really warm stuff, um, you know, food that is not um, very nutritious. 
uh, farming implements for people who don't farm, um, no training, nothing like that. So, um, <clears throat> so they erase us from the landscape, but we keep having, you know, we keep coming together, right? And they don't want us to have power. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, we're going to take the children and we're going to place them in residential boarding schools. And we are going to teach them how they need to behave and how they need to think. Mm-hmm. Because the whole purpose of Indian education in the 1850s was, you know what? So when we take your land and we take your culture, we will have educated so much of what you're, you're supposed to be like that we're going to be on the same page and you're not going to have an issue with it. Mm-hmm. So, and plus, you know, you want to keep them just not very well educated. So when you think of boarding schools, when I start thinking of boarding schools, I think of those white structures back east, mm-hmm. you know, with the steeple and everything's clean and, you know, young men especially go there and they learn, you know, they learn things about power. They learn history and they learn multiple languages and mm-hmm. they learn maybe military tactics and they they know they learn how to be powerful people. Mm-hmm. The boarding schools for American Indians were nothing like that. We were typically taught um, enough English to be able to understand what was told to us because we were going to be in a role of uh, domestic servitude. Mm -hmm. We had enough math to be able to make change and to tally up how much we earned from selling all those things we made because, you know, young men typically became wheelwrights, you know, making the the wagon wheels. Uh, They became tinsmiths. They became um, animal husbandry people. They became farm labor. Girls typically were taught to be seamstresses. Um, They were taught to be laundresses. Um, They were taught to be cooks. Um, So all of these things could be sold by piecemeal. Mm. And that's where the money for the boarding schools came from. And, um, and it wasn't much money. I mean, it's, it's terribly underfunded. They don't have enough coal to heat the building. So, you know, kids are freezing in the, in the winter. They're stifling in the summer. They have a quota system. So they're not going to bed until they meet their quota. Mm-hmm. Food is not nutritious whatsoever. It's a weak broth with maybe some vegetables in it, maybe some meat, but it's not nutritious. If they speak their language, they are physically punished. If they try to escape, they are tracked down and severely punished to the point of being held in isolation, shackled in small areas that have no protection from the elements. So um, when you think of those boarding schools back east, how many of those boarding schools have a cemetery attached with them? Mm. Every residential school has a cemetery. Wow. There were so many deaths. There's death from disease. There's death from exposure. There's death from um, illness. 
they it was such an embarrassment at times for places like Haskell Indian School in Kansas that they stopped keeping track of how many kids died. Wow. So, um, so again, we kept trying to come together. Mm-hmm. So they, they attacked the children. The next thing you want to do is, okay, so let's get maybe the older, you know, the next age group involved. So we're going to take them, we're going to remove them from the land, we're going to find them jobs, and we're going to train them how to do these jobs. And, you know, they're not ever going to want to go back to the reservation. But they kept coming back. They, you know, there was still visitation. So mm-hmm. what do you do? You place kids for adoption in white families, you know, vastly uh, numbered white families, and you have them in closed and sealed adoptions. Mm. The biggest thing is we were never supposed to come home. Yeah. So that was kind of, you know, there is the face forward idea of um, the Indian Adoption Project. And it was a foregone conclusion that these kids should be placed with white families because, you know, Indian families were just a mess, right? There was alcoholism, there was violence, there had no education, there was poverty, you know, there, there, you know, at one, at one point they were described as worse than city slums. What I think is really interesting about that is at no time in these discussions of the late 1950s did anyone say, well, we are responsible for that. Did anybody in the U.S. government who was backing this say we are responsible for that? So that's the part that you were talking about erasure. Mm -hmm. Definitely erase that. So we're going to place these kids with white parents in white communities and we're going to study the families to see if these kids can thrive Mm -hmm. so between 1958 and 1967 you know there was a pool of 395 kids over 5,000 people applied to adopt these kids wow 5,000 people and I think one of the more disturbing pieces so the the person who created the study david banchel um his book far from the reservation details the study mm-hmm. you know it's it's about i mean it's it's it tells you the whole nine yards of you know picking and choosing and going through the applications and the questions and, and the findings mm-hmm. but you you start reading especially the early piece trying to find these adoptive parents and and for instance there's this one quote this man is asked well how do you feel about having an american indian boy in your family and he said well i didn't really know how to feel about that i i didn't know if i was real comfortable with that but then i found out he was a hundred percent indian and i became so proud that I was going to have a hundred percent Indian boy in my family because I feel like I am saving a piece of history. 
Wow. And you begin to realize there's very few parents in there that are neutral mm-hmm. about having an American Indian kid in the family. So these kids are going to places where parents already have an idea of how well this is going to work out or how well it's not going to work out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was determined within the first three years, the early findings determined that, you know, kids seemed really successful. They seemed to be thriving. You know, parents got along with kids, kids felt comfortable in their families. And when they put that out in whatever way they put that out, It's like anybody who was anybody got into the American Indian adoption business. Mm -hmm. So you have Catholic charities and you have Lutheran family services and you have the Methodists and you have the Pentecostals and you have the Mormons and you have the Jews, including all kinds of other people. And they are all out placing American Indian kids in white families. Mm. So you had quoted that, you know, between by 1972, between 25 and 35% of American Indian kids had been placed into non-native families. Wow. Now, when you take nearly a third of a population's children, you are removing their future. You are removing the future of that population. Because mm-hmm. each of those children represent a piece of the language that could be passed on. Each of those children represent a piece of culture that could be passed on. Each of those children represent a story that could be passed on that is now removed. Mm -hmm. So the Indian Adoption Project, even though it was based forward a way to ensure American Indian kids are placed into safe families, when you start looking at the darker meaning behind why this policy even came to fruition, it follows on the heels of how do we get rid of American Indian tribes? Mm. Yes. There's no other trajectory. Wow. Susan, thank you so much for sharing, you know, this overview of this history. It's so important for all of us to be aware of its origins, and even the continued impact, even today, as you mentioned, you know, removing these children is removing a culture and continuing in that legacy of decimating uh, Native American communities and culture. So thank you so much for for even giving us that, that framework so that we can understand, you know, where we are today. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and you're here on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee, and I am chatting today with Susan Harness, the author of Bitterroot, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption. And of course, we have been talking about um, the Indian Adoption Project and the histories, the U.S. histories um, towards Native Americans, um, a very dark history that has often been silenced um, or minimized. And so I'm so glad, Susan, that you're here with us this morning morning and to help shed some light on this history so that we can have a better understanding and be more aware of even contemporarily things that are happening. I was mentioning um, the Brackeen and Holland case um, that challenges the Indian Child Welfare Act. 
that. And, you know, what really struck me as we were talking before the break was just this, this long history that continues to be perpetuated where we are having a very negative connotations um, when it comes to how we think about Native Americans, how we think about our own history. Um, and I think it's just so important that we understand where this history originated from. So you talked a lot about power and U.S. desire to remain um, supreme within its own kind of created national borders and doing so in this case through uh, Native American children and removing Native American children from their families, from their communities in attempt to really decimate Native American culture. Um, now, we know that the Indian Adoption Project um, only lasted, I think, less than a decade. So can you talk a little bit about how it came to an end, or I guess technically came to an end, uh, but we, again, still see many of those effects ongoing? So, I mean, it was a study. So there was going to be a beginning and an end, mm -hmm. and it was only supposed to go for nine years. Okay. And, um, and so... You know, at the end of that nine years, it did seem to find that children did better. But David Fanshell, he'd be an interesting person. I wish that I had been able to talk with him because I think he saw some things on the horizon mm. that made him uncomfortable with all of this. So even though children seemed to thrive, his first caveat was, we don't know how things are going to be when these kids turn into teenagers. Mm -hmm. We only know how they're responding now. Because when the kids turn into teenagers and their, um, their search for an identity starts coming to the surface, there could be issues that arise then. Mm -hmm. His second caveat which I think is really powerful is American Indians should have the right and the ability to decide what happens to their children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those two things are kind of buried in, in the midst of this dissertation is this research, mm -hmm. but he stated them. Yeah. And I have to really admire that he, he stated them. That's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, because we see in other um, communities of transracial adoptions, similar studies that were focused on how are these children doing and everything seems fine when the children are younger, pre-adolescent. And of course, everything seems fine when you're getting reports from parents and their you know, perspectives of, of how you know, their children are doing. Uh, but as we see, again, across a variety of different communities of transracial adoptees, you know, once adoptees are teenagers or enter young adulthood, there are many more questions about family, about identity, culture, and that cannot be denied. And so I think, it, like you said, it is very important that that was included in the, the kind of findings, right? Or even thinking about future directions, because a lot of researchers don't include that or don't think about that. <laughs> they think about, well, what do the parents think? Are the parents happy? Think about it from the parent point of view, the adoptive parent point of view. 
And then that second piece about, again, the importance of Native American families having sovereignty over their families, having a say. And we see across different marginalized communities that families don't have a say, um, that the state intervenes um, and makes choices um, that lead to family separation. Um, and so we have the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1978 that is attuned or thinking about um, American Indian families and the rights of the family. Could you talk a little bit about the Indian Child Welfare Act and what it was meant to do? So the Indian Child Welfare Act, in short, was meant to keep kids from flying off the reservations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to establish to establish a piece of legislation that reminds everybody Treaties are signed between nations. We are a sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. We determine what happens within our borders. We determine where our kids go. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of language in there that is legal language. From a cultural anthropology point of view, the Indian Child Welfare Act requires that certain things, active efforts be made before a child can be placed with a non-native family. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that is really important is that the child be, um, that the child remain with their parent, which means that if their parents were addicts, if their parents experience domestic violence, if their parents um, do not have job skills for whatever reason, keep in mind, this is 200 years of ripping American Indian culture apart to the point where when, when you get that close to an edge of extinction, you don't come back whole. Mm -hmm. So, the first order of business then is to ensure that parents have access to things that will help them overcome these barriers to keep their child. Treatment centers, job training programs, um, you know, a, a um, treatment in, in domestic violence counseling. Mm -hmm. If those efforts fail, then active efforts must be made to keep the child within their extended family. And this is the piece that, you know, as, as I came to understand that my family had not died in a car accident, like my parents had told mm -hmm. me um, that they were living on the reservation. And when I met them, maybe my mom wasn't a good mom. She just couldn't be a good mom for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole other network that are fabulous people. You know, they're working, they're raising their families. Um, there's, and that's been the traditional way of child welfare is mm -hmm. to place with family or place in community. So if a family member, an extended family member can't be found, then active efforts must be made to place a child within their community. If nobody in the community can be found, 
then active efforts must be made to place the child with a family with member of a federally recognized tribe. So community on a much larger scale. Mm-hmm. If these four things do not produce somebody who is willing to take that child, then and only then can they be placed with a non-native family. Mm. So what the argument is, is you've got this white group of people who say, but we want that child. And they want to bypass all those steps. Mm -hmm. And they feel they have a right to bypass all those steps. And, um, and they say things, you know, and, and they really, the, the arguments that they put forth are really designed to elicit an emotion within you. So one of the big arguments you're going to hear from, from that group of people who want to adopt Indian kids is, but we are the only family this child has known. Mm-hmm. Because many times children are, are removed when they're early, you know, in their early years, but there haven't been necessarily active efforts made. They're just taken. And it's just, I sit there and I think that that's not the point. Like the system has made it possible. So you are the only person this child has known. Mm-hmm. That's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um. They will also say things like, but there's no resources for the children. And it really bothers me when children who are toddlers are placed into counseling and given diagnoses because that's going to follow them for their whole life. Mm-hmm. And we're already bad people, right? We're already not fit people. And so to have now a psychological diagnosis follow you through life, that puts you even further down on that social hierarchy. That really bothers me. The medicalization, Mm -hmm. the medicalization of adoption. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you were talking, I was really thinking about, again, like how all of these threads from the past, we see them coming up again and again in the present. And so as you mentioned, you know, particularly for white families who feel like they have the right to these children, that they have the right to bypass the laws and structure that have been put in place to try to protect and preserve American Indian families. But it's very much connected to a long tradition of feeling like you have the right to do what you want and that your desires deserve to be met regardless of the impact and in particular the negative impact that it has on other communities around you. And then also thinking again about those stereotypes that we have about American Indians, like you said, oh, they're unfit or they don't know what's best or ungovernable, right? They need to be in the care and protection of white folks, which again, all these stereotypes and assumptions being played out, we see in this realm of adoption. Let me talk for just a moment about where these stereotypes come from. Because they surround us every single day. They still surround us. This is the type of thing this child is being raised in. Okay. So one of the stereotypes is that American Indians are drunks. Hmm. Okay. 
Leaning Tree, you know, the card company, used to portray, you know, these funny cards mm. that, um, you know, that showed drunk cowboys or drunk Indians. And that was just taken for granted. Um, a couple of years ago, I was up in Glacier National Park and I went into one of the um, one of the concession stores and I'm looking around and, you know, they have all kinds of weird stuff in there. But I'm looking down, there's a wine holder. It is made out, it's a clay wine holder fashioned out of the feathers of a headdress that had been split to hold the wine. Wow. Now, Glacier National Park is adjacent to the Blackfeet Indian Reservation and it's 30 miles away from the Flathead Indian Reservation. Who okayed that? Mm -hmm. Who even thought that that would be an appropriate thing to sell, to make? When we drive around, we are constantly told by uh, highway signage what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. Wording matters. There was a sign in Utah that was on the edge of the Pony Express Trail that talked about why the Pony Express Trail didn't last very long. You know, it was difficult to build. It was difficult to maintain. And plagues of Indians, you know, about the, the old Westerns, you know. Um, but even something as, as recent as... Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the movie. You might know, but Jackie Chan, mm -hmm. uh, when he was in the movie about the West and, you know, he was Chinese, but he at one point pretended to be Native American and was given a headdress and was given a peace pipe to smoke. And that pipe was filled with marijuana. Mm -hmm. And everybody thinks that's hysterical. It might be hysterical, but that's a message. Mm -hmm. The Victoria's Secret model that came out on the runway several years ago, she's walking out in a white headdress that is a sacred object. It's dragging on the ground, which it doesn't ever do. Eagle feathers do not drag on the ground. And she's in stiletto heels. And she's wearing a skimpy, skimpy little outfit. And it's just kind of like what that message is, is that women are, Indian women are sexualized beings. Mm -hmm. They are sexualized beings. Now, and that plays in missing and murdered indigenous women. Mm -hmm. But the other piece that really bothers me is, you know, you see this artwork and it's, you know, maybe it's on velvet, maybe it's not, but it's, you know, it's an American Indian woman and she's looking sulturally at the artist and one sleeve is off of her shoulder and there's, and, you know, there's wolves baying at a full moon in the background. And what that says is this woman is sexualized in a way that is close to nature. It's a raw sexuality. Mm -hmm. This is what these kids are being raised in. These are things that you can see right now. You know, there's a, a there's a neighborhood not very far from us who has um, 
its street names wanted to recall the Old West. And so you have Thundering Herd Way and you have Iron Horse Way. But then all of a sudden it's like Flaming Arrow Drive. And then it's like Firewater Way. It's like, who okayed that as a development? Mm-hmm. When you go through the towns, many of the street names in the towns in the West are named after cavalry officers. You've got Miles Avenue, you've got Terry Avenue, you've got Custer Avenue. You don't have Sitting Bull Avenue. Mm-hmm. You don't have Spotted Tail Avenue. Yes. So what is remembered and what is forgotten? Thank you so much for that, because that's exactly correct. You know, what is remembered, what is forgotten, and even how are things remembered? Um, and, you know, all the examples that that you gave, as you mentioned, you know, this is all around us. So even we don't have to pay attention. We don't have to be active consumers. We can be passive consumers on just movies or, or, or driving down a highway and we're exposed to these messages. And so they're in our subconscious. And then it becomes easy for us to think that it's okay that, you know, our favorite NFL team or our favorite baseball team, right, has these mascots that are completely objectifying um, an entire community and culture of people and it becomes so normal to us because of how we learn history and also how these these different images and stereotypes continue to be played out in our daily lives and the images right i mean like the cleveland indians who thought that i mean i just look at that thank goodness thank goodness they removed the iconography they removed the name because that one was so um, disrespectful. You know, you've got this goofy Indian and he's got a goofy smile on his face and a bulbous nose. And he's looking off, you know, to the to the right, like, you know, there's some mischief there. <laughs> so it's just, we, we need to be a lot more aware mm-hmm. of, what we're saying about groups of people and it doesn't pass anymore to say well this is an honor right right absolutely explain that right because dehumanizing people is not an honor it's not it's not complimentary Well, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're here with Susan Harness, author of Bitterroot, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption. And this morning we have been talking about the Indian Adoption Project, about the Indian Child Welfare Act, but also the importance of really interrogating our beliefs. And in this case, particularly thinking about American Indians um, and adoption as well. Um, you know, before the break, we were talking about how, you know, how we learn what we learn. And in this case, what we learn about American Indians, what we learn about um 
family as well. Um, and you gave us a, a lot of great examples of how iconography about American Indians is all around us, shaping what we think and, and how we think as well. Uh, but that need for really becoming more aware and challenging our own beliefs, which I think is is so important, uh, but can be difficult, right? Because we, you know, what we know, it becomes, we take it for granted. And particularly when we see all these different ideas supported through media or our textbooks or, you know, just the world around us. So I mentioned at the beginning of the show that right now there's a Supreme Court case, um, Brackeen versus Holland, which is, again, challenging the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And for a lot of folks, this case might you know, be flying under the radar to them, right? Again, it might be something that folks are unaware of, unaware of the Indian Child Welfare Act or even the importance of this case. Um, but I'm wondering, um, as you think about it, you know, what is the importance of this case? And maybe are there some things that we should be aware of um, that this case might impact um, depending upon what the outcome is? So when I first started really following the lawsuits mm -hmm. that were kind of arguing that children need to be placed with the best families, there wasn't even an implication of the color of those best families, mm -hmm. it was outright stated. I think the thing that bothers me is number one, that that concept that these families have a right to take an Indian kid. Mm -hmm. I think um, the evangelical nature of the thoughts that these people have a right to take an Indian kid to their God. Mm -hmm. That's wiping away an entire culture of spirituality. Um, I think it really bothers me that what is behind a lot of these cases, the big money that is behind a lot of these cases mm -hmm come from things like oil extraction, mm -hmm. resource extraction. So when you have this, you know, and people might make the argument of, well, that money's got to come from somewhere. But the thing is, is that if you follow the trajectory of arguing over the land, removal from the land, movement off the land, liquidation of the land of the 1950s termination act infringement on land which is constantly happening then all of a sudden people who have an interest in breaking up tribes even further by actively undermining the indian child welfare act and their money comes from resource extraction what do you think the end game is it has nothing to do with the welfare of Indian children. Yes, that's so important. Um, because it's not just about the children, if it ever was about the children. Um, and that's why I think it is important to understand that this lawsuit, as well as others that are similar, have been you know, bankrolled by these big conservative legal groups um, in order to start to chip away at 
an overall class of protections as you outline. So here thinking about um, tribal sovereignty over land, over the nation, and what happens when, if a case like this says, okay, there is no tribal sovereignty, um, then it opens a door, as you mentioned, to a lot of other laws and policies to also be challenged. Well, I think that's that's the concern is that if they get the key to undo ICWA, mm-hmm. they're going to see how that key fits into all those treaties, fits into all those rights, fits into everything that the U.S. government has declared is ours. Mm-hmm. Everything we have fought for, everything we have died for, You know, when you think about the Indian Wars of the 1800s, those wars dropped a lot of blood on the plains, a lot of indigenous blood. Those wars are now being fought within the courtrooms. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's just moved. Mm -hmm. It hasn't gone away. It's just moved. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's so important. To, to that reminder, because even, you know, earlier as we were talking and you mentioned, you know, over a thousand wars um, throughout early U.S. history, and we don't learn about that. We learn very little about Native American history. We learn very little about American Indians um, in any part of history, really. And even as we think about, in this case, um, family separation or family preservation and adoption, you know, even when we think about in the U.S., the history of transnational adoption, we usually think about Asia or we think about Europe, but it really started much earlier than that. And we can think about transnational adoption in the U.S. beginning with American Indians because they are tribal nations, sovereign nations. Um, But even that gets erased. So just the complete erasure of American Indians from our historical memory, um, which makes it easy for a Supreme Court case like this to also, again, not really be in the headlines, to not think about, again, the importance of this case, not just for families, but again, the other laws and policies that are at stake. Well, I think the bottom line is they just wish we'd go away. Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever it takes, they just wish we'd go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the other piece that's really, really, you know, that I think is really important is as adoptees, so many of us try to get home. So many of us want to return to our reservations, to return to our families, to see where we came from, to Mm -hmm. see who we came from. And that shouldn't be surprising because we live in a society that loves to go to archives and research their family trees. Mm-hmm. You know, blood is everything. So why wouldn't it be important for the adoptees? I think it, in so many cases, that's not even questioned. Well, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be, we're, we're family. It's just, but we're not family like your family to these other people. Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> When I, when I was successful in finding my way back home and I got to know my extended family, one of my uncles, Albert, I asked him on two occasions, what, what do you think I need to see 
-hmm. what do you think you need to show me that's important? And to have those trips and to have those conversations and to have him show me who I was physically as a child mm -hmm. and who I am as a reminder to my membership in this tribe is a gift that is just absolutely invaluable to me. Mm -hmm. Every adoptee should have that. Every adoptee, if they come knocking at the door, shouldn't be held at bay because we don't know who you are. What are you coming up for? You're trying to get the benefits. Mm -hmm. They should be taken and shown who they are. That is so important. Mm -hmm. And it should be done willingly. And when I talk with, you know, um, foster parents or even adoptive parents, um, are you going to make sure that that child is connected with their, their tribes? Maybe not an awesome thing to be connected with family. They should be connected with the tribes. That's when all the excuses start coming. Mm -hmm. What's well, going to cost a lot of money? Well, it's what happens when you adopt a kid from far away. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's going to uh, be um, confusing to them. It's going to what they're also not saying is it's going to make us feel uncomfortable. We don't want to be the outsiders in these spaces. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, but you expect your kid to be the outsider? Like, that's okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm really interested in opening up these conversations to the reality of what that kid doesn't say, mm -hmm. but that they need and making sure all sides understand that. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no more excuses. Uh, we have to be aware of the needs and meet those needs, not just be aware of them, but take the actions to meet them as well. Well, Susan, it has been a pleasure to speak with you this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's um, a passion of mine and I, I enjoyed talking about it and, and educating. I mean, I, I feel like I have to educate people about why this is important. So mm -hmm. thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you again to Susan Harness. She's the author of Bitterroot, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption, and also the author of Mixing Cultural Identities Through Transracial Adoption After the Indian Adoption Project, 1958 to 1967. I don't know about you, but I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I learned so much. And it's so important that we do learn more about our history, and in this case, thinking specifically about the history of Native American families, the history of the U.S.'s treatment of American Indians, and of course, today focusing on the legacy of Indian boarding schools. And as I always say, the past is present. It's forever present, and we see that even today with this Supreme Court case, Breckin versus Holland. And 
I will definitely be following the case to see what the final outcome is because there are implications far beyond just family preservation as we talked about this morning. Well, for today's positive note, I just want to reiterate something that Susan said, which is I'm not the one with an identity crisis. Society has an identity crisis with me. That really spoke to me as a transracial, transnational adoptee. But I think even for you, you don't have to be an, a, an adoptee to have felt like, wow, is something is something wrong with me? But there's nothing wrong with you. But it is our society that wants us to remain small and limited and constrained within these boxes or stereotypes um, that have been created about people like us. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm here every Monday morning. And of course, you can always re-listen to today's show or previous shows just go ahead and head to wyxr.org my show page let's grab coffee or subscribe to the show in podcast format wherever you stream podcasts